I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hi, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. I'm Kate. This is Mike. And we have a beautiful interview for you today with the one and only Danny Shapiro. This was such a great conversation, and we both could have talked to her for several more hours, so perhaps she'll be back someday. But Danny is an author, and I love her work. I came across her first through my friend Aiden Donnelly Rowley when she hosted her at one of her happier hours in New York City. And then she came back on my radar through our friend and company president, Licia. And then I saw her book all over the place, all of a sudden, Hourglass, recommended by Chris Carr, by my friend Nancy Levin, and it was all over Instagram. So we decided to invite Danny after I had gotten the chance to go to a book reading with her right here in our hometown of Portland, Maine. And in the interview, we talk about changing our perception of time and how to change our experience of time. We talk about navigating childhood illness with your kid and the heartbreak of that and what to do about it. We talk about marriage and also media and book tours and how to write a book and how to write a good one. And and then the difference between the literary world and the self-help world. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation. So Mike, do you want to give the official bio? Sure. So Danny Shapiro is a best-selling author of the memoirs Still Writing Devotion and Slow Motion and five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, Tin House, One Story, L, The New York Times Book Review, The Opt-Ed Pages of The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and has been broadcast on This American Life. Danny was recently Oprah Winfrey's guest on Super Soul Sunday. Kate and I big fans of the show. She has taught in the writing programs at Columbia, NYU, The New School, and Wesleyan University. She is the co-founder of the Siren Land Writers Conference in Positano, Italy. A contributing editor at Condé Nast Traveler, Danny lives with her family in Litchfield County, Connecticut. And her most recent book, Hourglass, was just published by Knopf. So this was my first introduction to Danny, actually, through once you know Kate met her, and then I was able to start reading Hourglass, which I've enjoyed reading that as well and getting to know Danny through the podcast. So it's, it was a pretty fun interview. Let's play the interview. All right, enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. And we have Mike. And we also have Danny Shapiro. So welcome, Danny. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you. We're so excited to have you. I think I told you this when we met, maybe, that I first heard of you many years ago through Aiden Donnelly Rowley, because she was having you at one of her happier hours that I could not make. But then you kind of fell off my radar. And then our Licia, who is helping us run our company, was talking about you and invited me to your book signing here in Portland a couple months ago. And I was just so captivated. You're so charming. Oh, thank you. You know, just when you said that, I just pictured your smiling, radiant face in the front row at that event. And it was every time I looked over at you, you were just beaming at me. It was such good energy. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I have to say, it definitely like scratched my sort of academic itch because it's been a long time since I've been more of a in a an official learning environment like I you know I do a lot of online courses and things but it's really fun to show up somewhere where for me because I'm a huge nerd it's really fun to show up somewhere 
where you're like learning in a group environment and there are rows and we're talking about words. It made me really happy. So oh, cool. I loved it. I'm a, I'm a total nerd and what a beautiful store. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Yep. Oh. And I have never heard of you until now I have. Yes, but you like, have. No, I mean, before that Thanks, day, Mike. I've never awesome. read any of your writing, but now I have. So... It's been great to get to know you through your writing. Well, and then you were popping up everywhere from Chris Carr's newsletter to then just like a bunch of all these different places. So it was so cool that you were then coming to Portland because people don't come to Portland all the time. (laughs) You know, I was so happy to be able to come to Portland. And we are close with Rick Russo, Richard Russo and his wife, Barbara, and their daughter, Emily, opened this amazing bookstore. And when we were up there... So my husband, Michael, and I were up there for dinner last winter and just had this feeling of, I knew I was going to be in New England for my, I mean, for part of my book tour. I knew I would be in Boston. I think I already knew I was going to be in Portsmouth and in Providence. And I thought, well, why not Portland? I mean, that would be such a great place to be. And so many people who are real lovers of the written word and artists and artisans. And so, yeah. Yeah. So can you tell me when you're planning a book tour, I'm going to ask you a lot of writer life questions today. Sure. Sure. I'm super interested in the behind the scenes always. And sometimes they can get a little minutiae, but it's how I think. So when you're planning a book tour, do you have an idea of how many cities you want to go to, how much energy you want to expend? How do you, what's the breadth and how do you gauge Mm. that? Mm -hmm. It's first of all, so much of a collaboration with the publisher. So Some publishers don't send, most publishers, I should say, don't send writers out on book tour anymore. Right. And my publisher, Knopf, sometimes does, sometimes doesn't with writers, but they really decided with this book that they wanted to really send me out. So that's a wonderful thing because it's such a display of confidence on their part. It's also daunting because it also feels like a tremendous responsibility (laughs) on, on my part to make it work you know, to really like be out there doing everything I possibly can. You know, the way I think of a book always when it's coming into the world is it, it feels to me like it's this, like you give birth to it, like you write it and that's the gestation and you give birth to it. That's the publication day, although much less eventful than giving birth. Usually nothing (laughs) happens. Nothing happens on the publication day. You know, if if you're lucky, somebody sends you flowers, but like nothing. Nothing happens. It's like resounding, kind of just quiet. But then the book comes out and they're really, the feeling that I have is like all of a sudden it's like a toddler that's trying to cross a superhighway all by itself and it needs the author to hold its hand and be like, okay, we're going to dodge these cars and let's make a break for it now. And okay, let's stop at the, you know, the median. And so the process of creating this book tour really started probably about nine or 10 months before publication. And I was assigned a publicist at Knopf, which is, you know, for listeners who don't know, it's probably, I mean, many people consider it to be the best publisher of literary fiction and nonfiction uh-huh. in the world. I mean, and so, you know, and they have a great, having been published by a number of different publishers myself, I know how good their publicity department is. And so I was assigned a publicist and we started talking and she was saying, well, we're thinking of you sending you to these cities. And she named, you know, a bunch of cities. And, but it was very collaborative. I would then go back and say, well, what about, you know, I mean, if you're sending me to, for example, publishers tend not to think of Los Angeles as a good book town. And Los Angeles has been a great book town for me. It's not true for everybody, but it's always been fantastically good for me. And so they were already going to be sending me to San Francisco and Seattle. So I said, well, let's, 
let's make LA happen. And then Portland, Oregon got added on. So then suddenly there was this, you know, swath of cities on the West Coast. Right. But also things like, you know, the, the author, I think, also has to be collaborative in other ways. Like my publisher put me up at fantastic hotels and had cars meeting me in all sorts of places. But when I was in LA, I was going to be there for, I think it ended up being four days and I had four events over the course of four days. I have a really good friend who has a very beautiful and comfortable guest room. And I said, you know what, I'll stay. Knopf didn't ask me to do that. I thought, you know, it's not fair to ask them to put me up in LA for four days. Mm -hmm. They're doing so much. I'm going to stay with my friend in her guest room. That's probably nicer than most hotels. (laughs) And I'm very comfortable and and feel very at home there. And then from there, I'm going to go out into the world of LA and do these four or five events over these four days. But then, or I also added Minneapolis. I said, you know, I actually really think that I have a following in Minneapolis and there are some great bookstores there and there's some great literary organizations. And I had been on the cover of this magazine called Experience Life. Oh yeah, I know um, Experience Life. Yeah, and they're based outside of Minneapolis. Oh, and so, did you yep. meet with, is Pilar still there? No, no she's Pilar not. Pilar is not, okay. no, Pilar has left and I, and I have not met the new editor-in-chief, but I knew all the other folks and I just sent them a note and said, nice. hey, I'm going to be, you know, so stuff like that. So it's collaborative, but it's very, there's a long on-ramp, at least for this kind of very delicate literary book where you have to take great care to make sure that it's going to find its readers. I mean, sometimes there are books that are just big 10-ton gorillas and you can throw them out into the world and everybody's going to immediately pay attention. But for a book like Hourglass, I think there needed to be a, a lot of care that went into it. And what is it about this book? I have my own ideas, but what do you think it is about this book that required that care? Well, I mean, first of all, and I would also add the word protection. Mm. Like when I was writing Hourglass, I made a decision to not write it under contract. I waited until it was finished to sell it, which I haven't done since my first book. Mm. Actually, that's not true. I did it one other time. In the case of Hourglass, I didn't want anybody else's voice in my head. I didn't want anybody weighing in or giving me any input. I was terrified that it wasn't going to work, that it was this kind of almost poem of a book that was, I also thought that if I gave anyone a partial manuscript of it, it would be like giving them like, you know, like something written in smoke, you know, like it wouldn't make sense written and giving, you know, reading half of the book. It needs, it needs to be read almost in one sitting or two sittings. And the way that I thought of it as I was writing it was that it needs to be read in one breath. That's those, that was the language I used for myself. So I waited. And then when Knopf bought it, I was enormously relieved that it was Knopf because it felt like a book that needed protecting, that it could be misunderstood. And in fact, even with the protection that it was offered, there still were moments where it was misunderstood. Like people, several people have referred to it as a marriage memoir. It's not a marriage memoir. I mean, there's a lot about my marriage in the book, but what is a marriage memoir? Why do we have to like, you know, we live in a world where there's so much kind of need to kind of I don't know, label things. It's an addiction memoir. It's a money memoir. It's a family memoir. Or recently I actually heard the term misery memoir, which made me, it made me laugh because it's like, well, that's redundant. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. But so, so yeah, so so I think, I think there, there was something that was so delicate about the book that felt like it just needed a lot of care to be, to not be, first of all, to not be ignored because it's so slim and, 
delicate and they're, you know, in a world of gorillas, it was like this little baby fawn uh-huh. finding its way. So there was that, but also the protection of a publisher that was smart enough and sensitive enough to really be out there making sure that it was framed in the right way. So important, the right book jacket, the right language around it, yep. all of that. What I loved about the book is the fact that it's not chronological and it is, well, obviously some parts of it are, (laughs) but it's not like then this happened and then this happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also love your attention to time and our perception of time. And that's one of the things I've really been playing with a lot lately is how we can fully inhabit time and expand it and contract Mm -hmm. it depending on, you know, how much we're into what's happening in the moment, basically. Mm -hmm. So after writing this book, I'm curious, has your perception of time changed and is the way you're inhabiting your life a little bit different because of Mm -hmm. how much you spoke of time in this book? Yeah, that's such a great question. And also, I'm so glad that you understood the book to be about that, because I think that that's centrally what it's about, you know, and that I write about marriage really because I'm interested in what it is to be two people moving through time. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's almost a chicken and egg situation. It's like, I was obsessed with those questions about time and how time moves, which is why I wrote the book. And I think that I got more deeply inside of those obsessions and questions. Like I really feel and have felt for a long time. And I think feel more deeply that time isn't chronological. I mean, we can, yeah. you know, the, the, the physics of it is that's the case, but in terms of the emo, I mean, the physics of it is that it's not chronological. We kind of know that, but the emotional time, time, memory in time, the idea that every self we've ever been is in some way still alive inside of us and maybe even the selves that we're going to be, you know, that I feel less certain about, but I certainly feel like, I mean, I was so interested in reaching back and trying to meet in time, the girl I was, you know, particularly the teenage girl and the very young woman who was in my case, like, so kind of lost and confused and messed up. And, you know, was I already inside of her kind of just waiting to emerge, you know, would somebody who knew me back then have said, yeah, yeah, I I always kind of knew you were going to turn out this way. Actually, what's so interesting to me is I've had that conversation with people in recent months and the way that we see ourselves and the way people see us are so different. Yeah. I mean, I've had people I went to high school with or people who knew me as a teenager or a young woman say, yeah, this is you, not like this is a completely different human being. You know, when, when you write I mean, I'm digressing a little bit, but when you write memoir and you write multiple memoirs, it's an unusual way to go through life because there are readers out there who know me as the messed up 23 year old because I wrote, you know, slow motion, which is kind of very much based on, you know, and then there are the readers who've only read my memoir devotion who are like, you know, this, you know, young mother on a sort of spiritual quest, trying to figure out what she believes and you know, and on this spiritual journey. And then there's Hourglass, which is this, you know, midlife, you know, meditation really on time and, and memory. And one could make the argument, I suppose, that three different people wrote those books. Um, For sure. And yeah, and like people say to me, what order should I read them in? And I actually never feel like they should read them chronologically. It's like, well, that girl then became that woman who then became that woman. It's like, no, it's all kind of 
part of the same, you know, the same sphere that we're living in all the time. And so if that's the case, then I don't know. I think that that makes me more alive to the present moment, which is what we all want to be, right? I mean, it's like, that's the whole story of, you know, you know, what it is to be human is, can I be present for this? Right. You know, can I be present for motherhood? Can I be present for my work? Can I be present for my partner? Can I be present for myself? And what is it to do that? I mean, we can't do it moment by moment, every moment of the day. I don't know what that would even be like, but we can be constantly reminding ourselves, oh, right, come back. Here yeah. we are. Totally. Mm. I love that. It's really beautiful. I think I'm reading your memoirs backwards in time, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> which I'm really enjoying. Our daughter Penelope is almost two and she takes 800 years to go to sleep at night. So I have been reading your books while she falls asleep and just sitting there just, I'm a big crier, so especially devotion, mm. <laughs> just sitting there with tears streaming down my face and she's rolling mm. around in bed and just chatting with herself. Mm. And it's been actually really, really sweet. I um, love that. Well, you know, that, I mean, that, you know, you're in that stage of yeah. parenthood. And at the same time, like that just reminded me of this moment yesterday. So my son, Jacob is 18 and I took him to look at a college yesterday and he's driving and I'm like, and he's just behind the wheel of the car and I'm in the passenger seat, which still is taking some getting used to. But on the way home, the sun was setting. It was this beautiful night in New England and he was playing music for me as he was driving and he put on some cover of Mr. Blue Sky and I think, I can't remember who the original recording of Mr. Blue Sky the song is, but He's there and he's 18 years old and he's a very good singer and he's singing it. And I am remembering very, very clearly his being nine years old and this teeny little nine-year-old at this summer camp who was in this men's acapella group. And my husband and I went to hear him one night. It was a two-week sleepaway camp. And he got up in front of this entire audience and he tilted down the microphone to his little face and he belted out Mr. Blue Sky. And I, you know, I'm like there in the car and that talk about time, it was like two symbols just clashing together, but in a beautiful way of like this young man now singing in his deep and sonorous, gorgeous mm-hmm. voice. And this like completely clear memory I have of this tiny little towhead, you know, singing this t- in this high kind of like, anyway, it just, that's it, right? Like you're there with Penelope and you're part of what's moving. I imagine is that it's like, you're reading about different stages of motherhood. It's like a little bit of a window into the future, even as you're in the present. It was. And also the other part that I resonated with is that, and now I'm totally choked up about your son singing. (laughs) (laughs) Get it back together here. It's it's electric light orchestra. Oh, thank you. That's right. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Well, I gave you a moment to regroup. Yeah, that's good. So with your son being ill his first year of life, we did not, it was not life-threatening with Penelope, but she has had, mm-hmm. uh, we've had quite a health journey with her. And so mm. that piece too, I really resonated with, and I really appreciated in devotion what you shared about being that lighthouse for other mothers and how you yeah. would always take the call yeah. of other people 
who are having this experience with their children. Can you say what your son had just because I'm not going to say it right? No, of course. He was diagnosed when he was just about six months old with a very rare seizure disorder called infantile spasms, or also it's called West's syndrome. It's I called either one, but West syndrome is named after the doctor who discovered it. Or, and it's, you know, it's a seizure disorder that's infantile in nature. And so if the baby survives it, the seizures are what cause all the damage. The seizures that are part of that disorder cause, you know, death, they cause, you know, mental impairment, they cause blindness, they cause, you know, basically every malady that you could possibly think of. And the statistics that we were looking at when he was six months old were that 15% of babies who have this come out of it in one piece. And only seven out of a million babies are afflicted with it. So there wasn't a lot of funding, there wasn't a lot of information, all the information was really grim. I mean, one of the things I write about in devotion was that, you know, I would go on the internet and there were nothing but terrible stories. You know, all that people would do is put terrible stories up on the internet. And because mostly there were terrible stories. And one of the first things that we did after it appeared that Jacob was going to be okay, was we put up a page about him and with information. I wanted parents to be able to stumble upon a good story. Yeah. I mean, if they, if they were looking for this and, but the learning, I mean, look, we ended up being incredibly lucky and that, and it's funny because one could imagine thinking, well, that wasn't lucky. It wasn't lucky to have your baby <laughs> afflicted with, right. you know, a disease that only affects seven out of a million babies. Those odds aren't, you know, that wasn't lucky, but I've never think that way. All I think is we were so lucky. He dodged a bullet. We all did. And, and there's this moment in devotion where a friend of mine who actually knew a family where the kid had had this and the kid had survived and the kid was now in college. The kid was in fact at Dartmouth. And my friend said, I'm going to call my friend and ask her to talk to you. You need to hear somebody, you know, who has, I was so hungry for good outcomes. And my friend called me back a day or two later and he sounded really chagrined and he said, I'm so sorry. She's not willing to talk about it. It was too painful a time. She doesn't want to revisit it. Mm. And I just thought, well, mm. what I thought, and I wrote about this, I wrote this in devotion. I, I, I just in the moment thought that will never be me. Yeah. Your son is at an Ivy League school. Like he almost died and he was facing brain damage and he has thrived and it's too painful for you to go back there and talk about it. And help another human being. So that's, yeah, so that's just for me. And it happens. It happens once a year, you know, that people sometimes call. more. Sure. Just, you know, and most of the time I know I'm talking to people who probably their kids are not going to be okay. But there's also like different options. There are different medications. I mean, one of the things, and, you know, when I wrote Hourglass and I found myself, you know, it's interesting when you write multiple memoirs because you know, I never want to repeat myself emotionally. I never want to, it's like, I'm not a broken record. I'm not stuck on my kid was sick when he was a baby any more than I'm stuck on my father died when I was 23 in a car crash or, you know, whatever. I mean, pick any of the dramatic moments in our lives. If we're returning to them, hopefully we're returning to them in a new state of perception and understanding. And so when I was writing Hourglass, And this started kind of emerging again, that I seemed to 
you know, that the fact of Jacob's illness seemed to want to be a part of this book, I thought, okay, what do I want to say about marriage? Because what I'm writing about here is walking through time with someone. So what am I saying about what did this do to us? And I wonder whether you guys have had this experience with Penelope, like the feeling that we had getting to the other side of such a scary time and the way we got to the other side, which was with kindness and tremendous respect for each other and never any sense of blame or, you know, you did that wrong or I don't agree with you about this course of action. It was just we were very, very in sync. And that's something that stood us in incredibly good stead for the last 18 years. Because it was like, it was like a war we went through together. And we knew that in that war, each of us would have like flung themselves in front of the other to protect them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that and I was, you know, for us, it was definitely like, you know, just I think having a new baby, regardless Mm. of (laughs) health stress, like incredibly stressful. And, you know, maybe we'll someday have an experience of having a new baby without the health issues. But yeah, I mean, I would say for sure, we were largely on the same page and just really wanting to help her and just really wanting to be there for her. And, you know, one of my favorite things in Hourglass was about the third thing, right? That Mm -hmm. every marriage Mm -hmm. needs a third thing. And there's a hilarious, I don't know if you've ever heard the Wanda Sykes quote, but that every marriage needs a product. And so it's a similar idea. And, um, you know, obviously, I don't think the optimal third thing is your child's health. (laughs) But it definitely like it definitely brought us together for sure. What would you say, hon? Yeah, it definitely brought us together. And I think there was, you know, there were things that came to the surface in our own marriage that actually we just recorded on Monday, our podcast episode Mm. about that. But there was things that were exposed as well. Yeah. Yeah, And then you kind of turn like I, I mean, third thing wise, or every marriage needs a product wise, you know, the idea of like at certain moments kind of going like almost the image that I have is of two people swiveling in the direction of this is everything right now. Yes. Like when your yes. your daughter's sick, nothing else matters. You know, everything becomes second to that. And having that, and, and nobody cares as much as you do. Nobody nobody can. Other people yeah. can love your daughter, but nobody cares as much as the two of you do. And so that becomes this, incredibly sh- this incredible shared experience yeah. that does reveal some things, you know, like, and I think over time reveals things too. Like, you know, we all have different, one of the reasons too, why I wanted to write Hourglass is I was thinking about growth and the way that we all grow at different rates and at different times. So, and you know, if you're committing to be with somebody over what's hopefully the course of a long life together, you're not going to be growing in tandem. So like, what does it mean that somebody has, there are definitely areas of my marriage where I think I have more clarity and strength than my husband. And there definitely are areas where I think he has more clarity and strength than I do. And so when I think back to that time and to the, like, I don't know, just the way, and I can't imagine, and I know people do, but I can't imagine having gone through that alone, you know, without that other person who, I mean, even my husband's parents who my mother-in-law passed away my father-in-law is still living, but, you know, we're close to them. They you know, complex people. But when they came down, when Jacob was sick, and were around, it was 
you know, it was almost like that. It takes a village. You know, I don't come from a family that gathers together. Right. I, I mean, there's not enough of them to gather and they're not <laughs> gatherers. <laughs> they're, you know, they're like, you go into your corner and I'll go into my yeah. corner and hopefully we won't kill each other. Whereas Michael's family really gathered and there was just that sense of these are the other people aside from us who care nearly as much as we do about this child. Um, now for you, this is not a writing question. This is a mothering question for you raising a child not with family support of your biological family that were gatherers. Did you, and were you able to create that village? And Mm. was that like, was that part of your experience or has motherhood been more isolated for you or what's been Mm -hmm. your journey? Oh, that's such a great question. And it's been such a central question to the last 18 years. I mean, in the very early years of Jacob's life, we lived in Brooklyn, which is, very much, especially if you're a writer, a village of a sort, you know, like places just crawling with writers. And so a lot of our good friends lived there and some of them were having kids around the same time. But what happened with us is after 9-11, after Jacob's illness, and I mean, the trajectory of it was he was terribly ill. It took a long time. I mean, you know, it, it took a year before I think we started really feeling like okay, we can take a breath. And then 9-11 happened. Mm. And for me, there was this very powerful feeling of, I need to get out of here. It wasn't like, I need to get out of here because there's going to be another imminent attack. It was more like, this is a place where some unbelievably painful things happened. I want to take my family and move somewhere else where we would have the potential of, you know, some peace and some space and some it was, it was like an animal instinct that I had. And I, it was my instinct. Michael, my husband, would have stayed in Brooklyn. He is a former war correspondent. He didn't have that same feeling of, I need to get out of here. And so we moved to an area, a part of Connecticut in the northwest corner of Connecticut that really has a lot of community to it. And there were various ways in which I was... I was very conscious of wanting to build that village, knowing that I didn't have it, that my parents were dead, that I'm an only child, that you know I barely have any cousins on my mother's side and on my father's side. They're all Orthodox Jews, and they talk about a village. You know, they like they have their they have their whole they have an entire you know they have a, a whole planet that they've populated pretty much, but their lives are very different from mine, right. and so very much kind of like in it on my own and really spent a lot of time looking for, like, where are our people? But while that was happening, I was, you know, we were finding ways for Jacob to be in community, sort of like, so the school that he went to, this little Montessori school, a school that has tremendous community around it. The people, his graduating class in eighth grade from that school has had 30 kids in it. Hmm. You know, it's a really small school with a tremendous amount of spirit. And then, you know, just like sort of all through his, I had a moment last summer where I was, we were at this little lakeside club, this almost like an unclub, but a club nonetheless near us where he's really grown up on that lake. And I was looking around at this, this world of people that he's grown up with in this town where 
wherever he goes, people know who his parents are. People know him. They ask after what's going on in his life and whether he started to look at colleges and how's his tennis game and whatever, you know, just, or you need to come in for, you know, a dental cleaning or haven't I heard from you or whatever, you know? (laughs) And the thought that I had, because I wanted to give him something that I hadn't had. I mean, and that as parents, I think you fall either into the category of you've had such an idyllic childhood that you want to replicate it for your kid or, and maybe there's a gray area, but you know, on the other side of that is you had a really difficult childhood and you want to do something really differently for your kid. And that was my story. I wanted him. I mean, I hadn't intended to have an only child. I was an only child and and he was going to be an only child. And I didn't want him to feel ever like he didn't have this vast safety net of, of a world that would kind of help to hold him up. And there was just this moment at the lake last summer where I looked around and I thought he has that. I wasn't able to give him this big populated family, but I gave him the closest thing to that as I could. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, that first chakra is so important of our sense of safety and security in the world. And it has so much to do with, honestly, like not only feeling safe, but actually our immune system. I wonder, just totally anecdotally, does he have a pretty strong immune system? He really does. I would figure. to 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 the point where his pediatrician since he was six months old, is in New York City, two hours away from us. And we didn't want to change to someone up in Connecticut because we loved her and she had become a dear friend. And I can call her or text her, you know, any hour of the day or night, you know, and we've, you know, socialized with her, she and her husband many, many times. And she loves, loves, loves Jacob and our families are close. And I didn't want to let that go. But I wondered, well, how's that going to work? Because You know, if he has like an ear infection, what are we going to do? And he is, you know, the superstitious Jew in me is knocking wood here, but he, <laughs> it's been once a year, once a year, well, well child visit, check up. Yeah. once a year, you know, and he gets his whatever, you know, inoculations or whatever he needs to go to school. Yep. And that's it. And I actually recent, recently asked her, I asked her, how old is your oldest patient? Cause I was thinking, you know, he's 18 years old. And she said, right. 32. Oh my God. Oh my god! Because people don't want to leave her. People just love her. That's so sweet. Once you find a good doctor, it's like totally. So it just happened earlier today. I saw a doctor in Maine. We got in an argument. Our very first appointment. That's Mike. Yeah, and because like she was wanted to do her own thing and she wasn't answering my questions and. They called me today. They're like, are you going to do your blood work that she prescribed for you? I was like, no, I'm not going yeah. to. You can just cancel yeah. it. And she goes, okay, are you going to come back? Like, I'm just, no. I'm finding my own doctor. <laughs> That's like, what Mike said on the phone. He goes, I'm going to really find my own doctor that works for me. And he hung up. I go, who are you talking to? I was like, I don't know. That sounded weird to answer that way. But yeah, that's the nicest uh, way I could have said it. But, no, but it's yeah. true. Finding yeah. somebody to care, help you care for your body is really, no, it's a, big is deal. really a big deal. Okay, yeah. so... Switching gears for a minute here. Oh, did you have a question, hon? Well, I would like to okay. know, so are we, where are you switching gears to? Well, I was going to ask a little bit more about the business of writing. Okay. Oh, that's where I'm going to go. Okay. And then I want to ask about the secret agent M. Okay. And <laughs> there. Oh, let me ask one hourglass question yeah, yeah. to f- close out. So I heard you on Jonathan Fields. I was listening to your guys' interview. And... You mentioned something about when you first gave the manuscript to your husband, he said, this is fucking genius. And then he like, I think that's how the story, something Mm -hmm. along these lines. So like, what was it about this book 
that was his reaction? Like, why was this in his mind? And maybe we should ask him in the future one day. <laughs> but, like, I'm sure you guys have talked about this. So it's like, why was this for him fucking genius? Well, I think I have to answer that in two parts because he was my reader all the way through my writing it. And he was definitely not saying this is fucking genius. <laughs> um, he was, as he always is for me, I mean, just this morning, I like I really needed to have a creative conversation about the new book that I'm working on and my struggles with it. And he dropped what he was doing as, as I would for him and spent an hour like talking me out of a tree. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a big, that's our third thing. It's a big part of our relationship. And so he would sit in my office desk chair and I would sit in the chaise on my office and I would read him pages as I was working on the book. And he pushed me really hard. And it was not you know, one of the realizations I've had in the last couple of months since the book came out and I've been on tour and talking about it was those conversations were not about our marriage. Those conversations were literary. Those conversations, yeah. they were creative. They were about he was interested in helping me to make this the best possible book it could be. That was his primary interest. And way down on the list of his interests was protecting himself. It like, wasn't even really even there. And to the point where there's a moment in the book where he actually says to me, as I'm in the middle of writing it, he says, you know, I'm an okay guy, but you're not being hard enough on me. Dig deeper. Yeah. So I think after all that pushing, when I actually gave him the manuscript, which was the part I think I was talking about with Jonathan, I gave it to him and I went away. I was away for a couple of days teaching at a retreat. And I was really nervous about, it's one thing to be read aloud from a manuscript. It's a completely different thing to sit there and the privacy of your own experience and read it. I mean, I wasn't scared that he was going to hate it. I just was scared that he wasn't going to necessarily, because he's hard, he's very hard on me. And I value his opinion enormously. So, So what was it about it? It's a very different book for me than anything I've ever written. And I think on the level of both almost the poetic nature of it. It felt to me as I was writing it that it was closer to poetry than prose in certain ways. I wasn't so interested in chronology. I wasn't creating a plot of any kind. There was no plot. Somebody said to me at one point when I was writing it, is this about whether you're going to stay or whether you're going to go? I'm like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it's like, they were like, so what's the jeopardy? And I was like, you know, it's actually about the jeopardy of staying. Um, yes. And staying is a whole lot less dramatic than like you know, going off and having an affair or leaving or so much harder. Yeah. But it's so much more beautiful. (laughs) It's so much more beautiful. And that's what I want. It's like harder, complicated, and also beautiful. So I think that that's what he really connected to. And somebody just said to me today who had seen the segment on the Today Show of the two of us, Mm -hmm. that it seemed and she's not someone who knows either one of us well at all. And she said, it seems to me like this book brought you even closer together. And she somehow intuited that, but it really is true. And I didn't know that that would happen. I was afraid that by making some aspects of our private life together public, that it might, I mean, the fear I had was that, you know, that he might turn to me one day and say, gosh, I wish you hadn't written that book. I was, if I could have had a crystal ball and seen that that was anywhere in our future, I wouldn't have written the book. Of course. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Hmm. 
so he so Michael came on the Today Show with you to talk about the book. I did notice it was interesting at the Portland book event. He was filming for Facebook Live, which I thought was great. And but Alicia's I did, idea. Well, that was his idea. Awesome. Alicia's idea. Oh, Alicia's. Yeah. Of course, it was Alicia's yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah she, I know. She's always like, "You could do this. You could do this." She's so good at that. <laughs> but I was wondering. I thought it was interesting that you didn't at the event. You didn't ever really refer to him directly or point him out or, you know, introduce him or whatever. And so was that just a conscious choice? Or do you just sometimes let him do his thing? Does he prefer to just kind of hang and not be pointed out? Or I was just Yeah, I think it was somewhat conscious. And I do think he prefers to hang and not be pointed out. But when he has been pointed out, there was a funny moment in Seattle where he was there. And a woman in the audience started talking about having met me like you know, 18, 19 years earlier at some event that I was doing and I was with my, you know, very handsome husband. There was something that she said that made me realize that he didn't, that she didn't know that he was in the room and she was asking some question about what he thought about something. And in that case, it would have been so weird for me not to say, well, he's right there. You can ask him, (laughs) you know? So when it's kind of glaringly, obviously appropriate to do that, I've done that. But, you know, I think He's a film director and a screenwriter. He likes to be, you know, when he was a war correspondent, he likes to be behind the camera. He likes to be, you know, not in the limelight. He's, you know, that's not something that is really an interest of his. So that's why. Yeah. Got it. Now, this book seems to have, people love it. I mean, (laughs) obviously, I really loved it. And it seems to have really taken on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. in terms of getting great attention and spreading. Has that mm-hmm. been a surprise to you? Or did you expect the world mm-hmm. to love it as much as they do? Mm-hmm. No, I never expect the world to. Yeah, uh, you know, I never, I, I <laughs> yeah. never, I never do. I, I, you know, I mean, even back to devotion, when I was writing devotion, I really thought this may be a book that no one reads, you know, that is so specific to me that no one relates to it. And then when so many people from so many different walks of life related to it. It was thrilling, but it was definitely, it should be a surprise. I mean, anything, yes. anything else is like hubris, but yeah. with Hourglass, it's been fascinating and buoying and exciting to see, and a real education in seeing the way that word of mouth has changed and what is important in a publication is different than it was five years ago. And that has so much to do with social media. Yeah, I'm absolutely amazed by the degree to which the word of mouth for Hourglass spread because of Instagram. Yeah, people started, they started reading it, I think it was helped by the fact that it's a very slim book. So people actually started reading it. The day it came out, it wasn't like, I'm going to save this for the weekend, or I'm going to read this on my vacation. It wasn't a big fat book. It was a book that you could read in a night or read on a flight or read, you know, or listen to in a a car. And so people started reading it very quickly. I mean, very, you know, they came to it fast. And it also has a really beautiful book jacket that was very photographable in a way. No, that was not intentional. It wasn't like, ooh, we're going to come right. up with a book jacket. But it was because the book jacket was a photograph of my husband and me actually on our wedding day. And it was a very arresting cover. And so people started Instagramming and to a lesser extent using Twitter and Facebook, but especially Instagram, they started Instagramming the cover and the cover, 
you know, in a garden or on the beach or in the woods or at the edge of the bathtub or as they're reading it or with a cup of tea. And these images just started cropping up and cropping up. And then that starts to kind of, or at least it did in this case, starts to become a little sticky and people find it, you know, word of mouth and social media, I think, are almost synonymous now in our yeah. culture, which is something I really didn't know or understand. And I've had people come to me and ask me what the campaign was. There was no campaign. Uh-huh. And there eventually was the recognition of things happening and then trying to do them intentionally. So, for example, when all of these, and I've been very flattered recently, like people have been copying this, but I think that we were the first to do this. Like people started posting lots of images of the book and Michael went and made collages of the various posts. And then I would post a collage of all these different images of the book and say, Hey guys, I love seeing these. Please keep posting them. I really see every single one tag me. And so people would post more and more and more and more. And that's been really revelatory is that the shift in, you know, it, look, it's great to get good reviews, but good reviews don't sell books anymore. And I can't even believe I'm saying that in a public way, but they don't, they don't, they don't. And I love, and I write reviews. I believe in literary criticism. I really do. But you can get a rave review in a major newspaper and it won't sell books. But like, for example, when Chris Carr, you you know, you mentioned her earlier when she did that newsletter on Hourglass, it was probably as big a bump for me as when I was on NPR. Exactly. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Amazing. And so, and it makes it such a beautiful merit based. I mean, Chris wasn't my friend. She is now, but she walked, she read the book and she was reading Hourglass one morning. And that afternoon, she happened to wander into a bookstore, not in her hometown, actually in my hometown, which is nowhere near her hometown. And she happened to be in my town because for whatever reason, and she walked into this bookstore where I was giving a reading and she, and she had been reading hourglass that morning. We did not know each other. We've been, we have followed each other and we've like kind of waved, you know, across social media, (laughs) but we had absolutely no relationship. And we met that day. She stayed for my reading. I didn't know she was there. She came up to me afterwards and said, I'm Chris Carr. I was like, Oh my God. And then we had tea and then she said, I really want to, I want to help you. I want to do something for your book. And that has happened again and again in this way that, I mean, I've got to say this, like, I find it so like the world of wellness and self-help and, you know, the Oprah folks and, you know, that whole kind of universe is full of such generous people, Mm. people who are generous to each other. And people who have been extremely generous to me in ways that literary writers don't tend to be with each other. Um, Literary writers have this idea that there's only, and it's not true of everybody. I'm known to be very generous and it's like, it's been said about me enough that I kind of sit back and go, oh, I'm generous. I guess that's what that is. I mean, I like helping people. No, like, yeah, that's what generosity is. Like, I, didn't, I didn't like set out to be generous. I just right. like do shit. And right. then people are like, you're so generous. Yeah. And, you know, but there's almost, there's always like been a sense, like when I was in graduate school and I sold my first novel, my teacher, my professor did not tell the class. Really? And did not congratulate me. <gasps> 
And it's a very unusual thing to sell a first novel when you're still in a master's program. And I think it it's a very like, unusual thing to sell a first novel, period. Period, right? But if you're 27 years old and yeah. you're in graduate school, it's like, but like people were, they were jealous and pissed oh, right. and competitive. Such a lack mentality. Completely a lack mentality. And one of the things that I have seen in this publication is that because for whatever reason, not something I set out to do, but something that I recognize. I have one foot very solidly in the literary world, yeah. and I have another foot very solidly in, I guess, what we would call what? I mean, I don't even know what to I call don't it. I even the, know what, what this other one that we're whatever, part of. This, what, whatever that is, that there should be a good, a good like word the for wellness kind oh, of, yeah. well, spirituality, wellness, yeah. personal development, yeah. kind of yeah. self-optimization. I mean, I, yeah, I teach meditation now when I teach writing. I can't teach one without the other because the two are part of my practice. Yeah. I my writing would go out the window if I did not like settle my mind, you know, on a daily basis. And so then that becomes part of what I do and so therefore that attracts people to me who are interested in those things as well and you know, my long-time yoga practice. I mean, I think one of the mistakes that people sometimes make is that they ascribe intentionality to something that has happened completely organically, that then the person, you know, sort of at the center of it says, oh, I see. So this is happening. These doors are open. I'm going to go through these doors because, wow, they're swung wide open and there's, yeah. and there's sunshine on the other side. Why wouldn't I walk through them? <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's really, I think it's, that's such an interesting point because you know really when you think about okay the literary world versus we'll just call this other world you know alternate planet that we live on <laughs> like life I, yeah just like mm. the self-optimization I mean, world just... when you think about just from the literal facts and i think this might be helpful for people listening you know who are entrepreneurs our audience is, is primarily entrepreneurs who are making stuff entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. creatives you know book buyers book readers are people who will continue to buy books. So like when Chris Carr promotes your book because she loved it, people aren't going to buy your book instead of Crazy Sexy Kitchen. Right. Like, book buyers are book buyers. We all are going to want 800 more books. And so it's right. such an interesting thing because the literal truth is promoting somebody else's book is not going to diminish your book sales. Right. Like, book buyers right. are book buyers. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They're like um, consumables in a way. Right. Well, it's, right. I mean, it's no different in the literary world than like the business world has been for decades. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's about instead of there's a guy I follow by the name of Gary Vaynerchuk. He has a saying that he's like, I don't want to build the biggest building in town by knocking all the other buildings down. I want to build the biggest building in town just to build the biggest building. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. why he's doing that, of course, he's uplifting everything else around him as well. Yeah. Right. And right. it's kind of the culture that is shifting the whole dynamic of it. And it's like the right. same thing with like what you're experiencing now. It's like if writers don't stick together, you know, we've already done that. You know, it's like the competition against each other. And that's not turning out well because now there's a war on the media. Right. So right. because right. there's exactly. a war on the media because we've been a war against each other. So now it's like coming together and really be like, oh, we actually are doing all of this for the betterment of society. Right, completely. You know, and entrepreneur-wise, it's so interesting because we are living in this world where people, t like, back to the idea of definitions of memoirs, the misery memoir, the, you know, the medical memoir, the divorce memoir, the marriage memoir, the, you know, we also still, I mean, and this is the thing that I see 
as being this real moment of like a fulcrum of a shift is that we've been, you know, we've lived in a society that has tried to tell us who we are. Right. So, you know, you're this kind of writer or you're this kind of business person, or you're this, you know, you have this education, so you got to go do this thing or this thing that really personally makes me insane, which is asking 14, 15 year old kids, you know, you know, so have you decided what you want to do? You know, and it's like, I was just talking to my son about this today because we're just really, really urging him to go to the kind of school where he can still explore what he wants to do, not, you know, not have already made a decision by choosing to go to a film school or that kind of thing. But, you know, for me, for years, I would turn to my husband and say, who are my role models? Who are my role models? I mean, like, I mean, I hate to keep on using this term literary writer, but I don't know what else to, you know, to call it, you know, like, and then I'm on Oprah and then, you know, I write a book to help myself, which is my memoir devotion. And then it ends up helping all these other people. And then I write another book still writing that ends up helping people. And then, you know, even hourglass in various ways seems to be helping people. And so does that make me a self-help right? Well, no, I didn't write those books in order to help, but they are helping. They're helpful. So, right. And so they're helpful. So therefore, am I going to kind of say, well, no, literary writers don't, mm. you know, get up and talk in front of thousands of people or they don't Instagram every day or they don't do Facebook Live. You know, like that Facebook Live thing that you mentioned that we did in Portland, yeah. like we've done that in a couple of bookstores now. And every time we do, the bookstore owners or booksellers are like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever because instead of a reading being like for the 50 people who are gathered here, which by the way is a very good crowd for a bookstore reading, instead there could be 12,000 or 47,000 or 6,000 views of this thing. Well, and it really goes back to, I mean, I know that is for marketing purposes, but it's also really generous because you can't go to every town in the world. That's right. You know, and so people can sit on their phone at home and, and it also, you know, it's just from a sheerly entrepreneurial standpoint, it's leverage. I mean, I think about, you know, we're there in Portland, Maine, and I'm like, man, I mean, Danny Shapiro is kind of a big deal. And here she is in my hometown and we're a small city and, you know, it was standing room only. So you had a huge turnout, but it's a small bookstore. Mm-hmm. So, and right. then I'm thinking, man, like, this is amazing that she's doing these many events. And is that really worth the time? But when you start mm. to get into being able to really leverage that, it's super smart. And I really want to commend you for being willing, being open to other methods for getting the word out there and being helpful rather mm-hmm. than kind of staying in the box of, oh, well, you know, we just don't do this. Like, that's, well, that's you know, that's marketing yeah. or that's sales. Therefore, that's wrong. Thank you. Because like, to me, that's the thing that's really changing both. I'm noticing it outside of me, but I'm also noticing it inside even more. And the other day I was somewhere giving a talk. It was students of writing of all ages, you know, probably 18 to 80. And there was this older man and he was talking about, you know, as people starting out often do, they're putting the cart before the horse. They're talking about marketing and they're talking about like, how do I, you know, is is this a relevant subject? And I'm told this might not be, you know, there might not be a market for this, or I need to build my platform. And it's like, have you even written the thing yet? You know, but I said to him and the words had never come out of my mouth before. I said, be a unicorn, (laughs) be a unicorn. Stop like worrying and thinking about like what you 
you know, like fitting into some, following yes. some trend. I mean, my God, you're, you know, we're alone in the room, in a room, really bleeding, like out of our veins and like ripping open our hearts. Like you're going to do that in some way that involves like following. It has to come from that really individual place. And then like the image that I had is that everybody who does creative work of any kind you know, should be embracing their inner unicorn in that way. But then, like, then all the unicorns can kind of, I don't know if unicorns get along well with it, with each other, but they should. They should all, like, lock their little, like, their little unicorn horns and kind of just have have a big group hug. It's so true. And Chris Carr would love that because she's obsessed with unicorns. And there really is more than enough to go around. And the better it gets for you, the better it gets for all the people because helpful is helpful. I mean, helpful is helpful. I could literally talk to you forever, but I am going to have Mike ask our final two questions that we always like to ask because, and maybe we can have you back someday for the next book because I have so much more. (laughs) We Um. both have about 50 other questions. (laughs) We'll just ask them in person. Sounds good. Okay. We could do it in person with a Facebook Live (laughs) and record a podcast all at the same time because then we're getting multiple platforms. (laughs) That's correct. Yeah. Nailing it. What do you want your funeral to be like? Whoa. A very long time from now. Um, (laughs) And filled with, you know, what immediately comes to mind is like every, the handful of really extraordinary funerals that I've ever been to where there is such a sense of, you know, sort of joy within the sorrow because it was really a life really well lived and lived on its own terms. That's what I would say. Hmm. I love that. I've been to a couple of funerals like that. Not the majority, yeah. but you're right. There's a few that stand out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are yeah. A bittersweet celebration. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you, Danny. This thank has you so been much. such a pleasure. Where should people come to find out more about you and your work? My website, which is Danny D A N I Shapiro S H A P I R O dot com. Or you can find me, since I talked a lot about Instagram, I'm Danny Writer on Instagram and, you know, I'm public page on Facebook, all that good stuff. Amazing. I really do enjoy your Instagram feed. And please go out and get a copy of Hourglass. I also really loved Devotion and I'm in the middle of still writing and loving it. So I think obviously all of your books are amazing. The latest is Hourglass. And then I know you're working on the next one. So I can't wait to have that conversation when Thanks so it's much. Ready. So thank you so much for coming. This was such a pleasure. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Mike. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Ever feel like you're constantly doing things but aren't able to carve out the time or energy for the things that really matter to you? Mike and I want to share our top five tools for making a life, not just a living. To learn what they are, go to katenorthrop.com forward slash tools. See you on the next episode.